0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My um, guest today is Matthew Anastasi. He's the CEO of Limina Sleep Consulting. Right. He's been a, in the field of sleep medicine as a manager, sleep technologist, author, researcher, conference organizer, and a volunteer for 20 plus years. So Matt, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: Uh, it's good to be here with you, Rich, uh, especially now that March is sleep awareness month and we're still coping with the start of daylight savings time. Sleep is a topic on everybody's mind.
1: Actually, maybe we could start with that. What uh, What is the effect of daylight savings time that you've observed? when people
2: sleep well i have a uh, i happen to have a 2 year old so it's had a a big effect on uh, her routine because she she sleeps like clockwork so if if we get her try to get her to bed a few minutes off of her circadian rhythm uh she has a lot of trouble with that so in advance of the start of daylight saving uh what we did was we started uh advancing her, her bedtime, uh, just to get ready for that day and kind of, it, it did help, but, uh, she's still adjusting a week later now. Uh, as far as I'm so, concerned, did, yeah. I
1: mean, it, it, I guess some people would say, Oh, it's just an hour difference, but uh, does it have a huge effect if it's not handled right? Like, how do people typically handle it? And what does it do to them?
2: Yeah. So there's, there's, there's two, uh, processes that determine if someone's feeling alert, or feeling uh, sleepy. There's uh, process H, which is uh, the homeostatic drive. So this starts weak, the minute you wake up in the morning, and it starts to get stronger and stronger throughout the day, uh, the longer you go without sleep. So process H, uh, the drive for sleep, uh, it's just like thirst or hunger. The longer you go without it, the stronger it gets. But the other uh, process that's taking place at the same time is the clock. Uh, So the circadian uh, process C, the, the circadian clock, is actually embedded in every cell, living cell in our body. So every cell in our body, if you were to separate it from the rest of the body, knows what time of day it is. And when you change that, uh, even by one hour, that that's a, has a huge impact on uh, basically what it, the function that each cell has throughout the circadian rhythm. So circa or of about in Latin and dia or day. Uh, every cell has a different purpose and a different um, function depending on what time of day it is. For example, in the afternoon. We're recording this now at the circadian dip <laughs> between two and four o'clock is when a lot of cultures have their siesta and it's, it's among the, the lowest alertness times of the day because you have a, a buildup of the homeostatic drive, which is pushing down your alertness and you have a really weak part of the day for the circadian drive, which is the alerting drive. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah. So what what do you do at your uh, sleep consultancy with some of the main types of people that you see and what do you do? Well, I, uh, I took sort of my experience in, uh, you know, the first 10 years in my career, I did, did research. And then the following 10 years uh, I was uh, on the clinical side at a major teaching hospital health systems. And I kind of put those two together Uh, and started Limita Sleep Consulting to provide a variety of sleep consulting services for those companies looking to put forth evidence-based best practices. So sort of the first part of what I've done in the new era of affordable care. So in March, you know, we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary now, March 23rd, the Affordable Care Act was signed into law by President Obama, 10 years ago to that day, and that has not only had a huge impact on healthcare, but sleep specifically. So uh, companies that I've worked with, um, we've really uh, uh, created a lot of lessons learned from uh, putting ourselves at the forefront of changes in healthcare as far as sleep is concerned, and I'm starting to put that uh, into practice with Uh, you know, just my company and some of my um, uh, uh, approaches that I take. For example, I provide strategic analysis, expert strategic analysis for companies that are investing in the industry of sleep. Um, I provide a conference organization and lectures for sleep professionals who are trying to stay, stay ahead of changes in sleep. And that includes continuing education content, article, and book, book uh, chapter authorship. And uh, I've also been giving some insights and support for industry sales and marketing areas as well.
1: So, all right. So, what's an example of uh, of some of your work? I guess on the particular, not the maybe not the company side, but with dealing with individual people or groups or the advising side, like what what are some of the big issues today in sleep in terms of care and where they're lacking?
2: Well, the the, um, affordable care has had an effect on sleep as basically changing it from a fee-for-service operation to the current environment where providers are now being graded on how they can improve patients' quality of life, reduce exacerbation, exacerbations, reduce expenditures, and it's not just uh, providers that are impacted. A- insurance changes have sh- shifted the economic burden to patients as well. So for the providers themselves, they uh, the, the field of sleep uh, medicine, specifically with uh, sleep technologists and a lot of the hands-on clinical care that's, that takes place, it's, uh, you know, when I got started in the field 20 years ago, this was mostly an on-the-job training type of a field. So if you were a, a, a respiratory therapist working with sleep patients or a sleep technologist working with sleep patients, you learned on the job. And that made it more of a trade at that time than a profession. And what we've seen is that it's it's transitioned dramatically because uh, insurance is taking the healthy patients and taking them out of the in-lab setting and putting them into the home-based setting. So they're getting portables, they're getting um, uh, auto-PAP treatment. And that really started to change around 2012 when Medicare um uh, released a uh, position statement saying that that those uh, healthy patients uh, without uh, overlapping conditions that made their their healthcare more more complex uh, could be studied could be uh, diagnosed and treated at home. So what we're left with is really a sleep lab and a, a care environment where you have very high levels of acute patients. And that puts a lot of stress on the the care providers like sleep technologists and respiratory therapists. So a lot of the content that I've produced has been uh, and a lot of the work that I've done has been on uh, helping to raise that level of competency among sleep technologists and RTs and help uh, ensure that. Though they're being exposed to a lot uh, higher risk situations, that they have the tools that they need to to mitigate those risks and to to still have a safe environment for them to work. So that would. What, include, I
1: mean, what are what are what are the challenges in the environment for the practitioners? Like what, is it just too many people, or, or I don't understand?
2: Well, in the past, um, you would have kind of a mix of patients where um, you'd have real straightforward. Um, a sleep apneic who doesn't have any other serious medical condition, um, but that one serious medical condition. So you, they would come to the sleep lab. Uh, they would have, uh, they would just get titrated for uh, using um, a CPAP machine, a constant positive airway pressure machine, and they would respond pretty well. Now you you see uh, on a typical night in a typical lab, you don't see those patients at all. So those patients have basically uh, they're getting um, devices that take the the uh, the trained in lab uh, care professionals out of the equation. So what what you're seeing in the lab is a really uh, you're seeing, Uh, people with diabetes, contact precautions. You're seeing patients with serious mobility issues, uh, cognitive issues. And and these happen to be uh, uh, epilepsy. These happen to be the criteria that will allow them to be studied in a lab and excludes them from from portable studies, from uh, diagnosis and treatment in the home. So, so those are sort of some examples of patients that are in the lab. And in the past, if somebody, let's say, had a seizure, the the response in, in the policy and procedures would be call a code and the study. So we're 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 putting we're we're now broadening a lot of the testing that's done in the lab to be able to diagnose sleep disorders for patients using this example that have epilepsy. Which means everything has to change. Uh, sleep the sleep professionals need to be up to date on um, emergency responses. They need to have policies in place that accept a certain level of uh, neurological changes in the brain uh, and have sort of some responses. In place in case there there are um, you know the, those uh, incidents, and what that allows us to do is uh, if a neurology uh, physician, let's say, is referring a patient to see if they have nocturnal seizures versus a parasomnia, where a patient is acting out their dreams. They that's the type of patient we're seeing now, where we're 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 treating those uh, uh, more. more what in the past were specialized cases, but they're the they're the routine now.
1: All right. So what you're saying is the uh, the easy to solve cases now can be done with home tests or home treatment. So the harder ones are now going to the technicians, and that's why they need to up their game. For right. No more to help these kind of people.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And yet you're seeing even it it uh, transition even to um, CVS is now. Uh, putting together a big outpatient push for the diagnosis and treatment of sleep apnea. And they're starting, they're rolling it out in their minute clinics. So they have a couple thousand of these locations, and th- they're already selling uh, devices, um, mask interfaces for sleep apnea, and they're using nurse practitioners to diagnose and and write orders for those, uh, and they're using portable studies. So you're starting to see it just become more available, which is a good thing, and streamlined. So they claim that they'll reduce the wait time from about uh, five months to eight days, which is a big claim, but anything that's going to reduce the time that patients wait from diagnosis to treatment is a good thing is it five months right now? So just to wait, uh, just to get in to see a, a, a sleep professional is two to three months. Uh, a lot of sleep labs are booked out, uh, I would say a couple, one to two months. And then you have a, a period of time where the uh, durable medical equipment company needs to be brought into the loop to uh, get, get patients the device that they need. And then there's a 90-day 90, 90 period um, where you need to show compliance uh, within that 90 day period for uh, you have uh, one month that you can show four hours a night, seventy percent of nights to prove compliance in order for insurance to pay continue paying for a device so there's so many steps that um, uh, you know a patient can fall out of the loop that even in the best case the way it 's set up right now it's a it 's a period of months, which is unfortunate.
1: That one. it's like. Yeah. So how will um, CVS? They'll just make this available right away. I mean, how do they speed it up to supposedly eight days?
2: Well, that's their goal, and that's what they've claimed they they can do. Um, uh, what I imagine would be involved because it's not it has not been rolled out nationwide yet. But from what I've read about it, it's it involves a portable study in the that you can. Uh, take home in in the Minute Clinic, and uh, getting a diagnosis from those results would be from a nurse practitioner at the site. And then the device, the uh, the mask and the box or the, the the CPAP machine, it would also be available in the box in the uh, at the uh, site. So, would this
1: make it, it any cheaper? or would, would this I mean, it'd make it faster. I would guess it make it hopefully cheaper. But would the standard of care be high enough with a nurse practitioner versus like a you know a lab study?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's been the talk, sort of in my field, is that uh, you know even if you can reduce the wait time, it's there. There is a lot of problems with that model. So you're taking a whole field of uh, very high, highly trained people out of the equation. So people, like, when you go to a sleep lab and have a sleep study, when you when you get a, a, a diagnostic study, which is just, you know, attaching a bunch of wires, monitoring all, the whole physiology of a patient, you're picking up on things that a portable is going to miss. For example, a portable study generally doesn't even know if a patient is asleep. So they most portable studies measure the times per hour that you stop breathing, but if it overestimates sleep or underestimates sleep, uh, and, and it, it typically underestimates the, the amount of sleep, then it it will show inflated numbers of, uh, of apneic events. If it overestimates sleep, then it will miss a lot of sleep apnea. So that means that people who think that they're being um, yeah, people that think they don't have sleep apnea are out there, you know, driving on our roads, and they they're compromised. So there are there are a lot. Sure, of I guess it
1: predisposes them to accidents and things like that,
2: right? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, most people with sleep sleep apnea don't know it. Uh, the the American Academy of Sleep Medicine they contracted a global research and consulting firm to look at. Look at this issue, and they found that 2 to 4% of the population has OSA, but only 20% of the population has been diagnosed with sleep apnea. And out of the diagnosed, only 50% are compliant with treatment, which is a case for having trained sleep professionals work with patients. And if you look at those figures, less than 10% of those suffering from sleep apnea are effectively being treated.
1: So what, uh, what kind of an impact do you think that you're going to be able to make you know, over the next year or so?
2: Well, I've been working with a few companies to help them. Uh, you know, For example, I'm working with a, um, a, a company that, that uh, produces a line of all cloth masks, uh, interfaces for pap therapy. And most of their competitors, if not all, Use a material that's made of plastic um, silicone which doesn't breathe or uh, memory foam so this company um, it's they you may have heard of them they're the sleep weaver line of masks from circadians they're getting trying to get the message out basically about the advantages of their mask material over plastic masks and that's that's a company where Uh, you know, just with the evidence-based messaging that we can put forth, connect that with uh, sleep professionals and do it in a way that uh, puts them, you you know, puts their message out in front along with their competitors will give patients a lot of, uh, a lot better options than they currently have. And there's a couple of um, scenarios where where it's, it's really important to have a, 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 another option. Patients that are getting uh, CPAP or BiPAP in the hospital setting, in the inpatient setting, uh, are really prone to pressure ulcers. So this is an example where you're lo- using a, um, a very lightweight mask that is breathable, where it, uh, it doesn't, uh, because of the construction of the mask, there, it, uh, there's no moisture underneath it. So it breathes, it's lightweight, it's flexible, and it's a better type of mask for someone who's prone to pressure ulcers and skin irritation. Um, I'm also working with uh, RT Sleep World, and this is a company that does uh, live continuing education webinars, on-demand CEUs, and articles um, and professional conferences for sleep professionals for respiratory therapists and there 's a lot of information that that goes through that uh, that site uh, to professionals that i 'm helping with as well uh, we we 've been i 'll give you an example there's um, there 's uh, been a lot of Work done recently for uh, positional obstructive sleep apnea. So just by design of uh, the way uh, diagnostic studies are run, a lot of patients, there's very minimal time where a patient can be studied while they're on their back, while they're in REM sleep, which is sort of the prime position and stage of sleep where... Um, uh, sleep disorder breathing occurs. And the reason for that is that, you know, there's a lot of split night studies or really only partial studies, partial diagnosis, partial treatment, and very limited time where you're in that condition. And because of that, it it really doesn't lend itself well to diagnosing positional sleep apnea. And there are estimates that uh, patients with, exclusively positional obstructive sleep apnea. In other words, if they don't sleep on their back, they don't get, they don't have um, uh, sleep, dis- sleep breathing disorders. So either uh, snoring or um, apneas or hypopneas, that that uh, subset of patients is up to 41% in some of the literature. So there's a range, but it is an estimate because it's hard to, you know, to determine from, uh, polysomnography studies. But at the very least, patients with positional obstructive sleep apnea can really benefit from, uh, positional therapy, what's called. Um, and there is a lot, uh, there's been a lot of progress from the old days where positional therapy involved you know taping a tennis ball to the back uh, and that that or just having a spouse nudge you uh, a, lot, a lot of those uh, approaches are pain based which aren't conducive to good sleep but there's a lot of devices coming out now that are uh, they, they're more on the nudge side so they detect position, they detect what's going on uh, audibly and they'll, Use sort of a haptic feedback, the the kind of vibration that you get on a cell phone, in 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 different um, measures from low to high, to prompt patients to move from their back to their side. So that there's a lot of information that you know um, takes many years to develop in research, and then it takes many years to get out there through medical device. Uh, um, advances and also, you know, getting that information to pay to uh, to patients and also to sleep professionals through through continuing education.
1: Well, very good, Matt. So, what's the best way for people to find out more about your consultancy and you know, see if they need your help?
2: Well, I have a website and it's called uh, Limina Sleep Consulting LLC dot and Limina is spelled. L as in Larry, I, M as in Matt, I, N as in Nancy, A, sleepconsultingllc.weebly.com. And I'm also available at limina Sleepconsulting at gmail.com.
1: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Great to be with you, Rich. Thank you.
0: when advice is needed.